So, as you guys saw, today marks the beginning of Advent. We had our Advent wreath lighting. And Advent is the season of waiting in the Christian tradition. So it's a Latin word. It simply means coming or visitation. And the idea is that in the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we take a collective journey into darkness as we're waiting for the coming light, right? As we're waiting for Christmas Eve. So it's a season for us to settle down deeply into ourselves and to listen to our hearts and to find that spark of hope within the darkness for all those unfulfilled desires that we have of unrealized hopes, of unsatisfied longings. It's a time of active waiting. So in our Advent series, we're going to use the story of Elizabeth and Zachariah from the Gospel of Luke to talk about how we learn to wait. I don't know about you, but I am terrible at waiting. I, I was, patience is probably my, my worst virtue. So last week I, I had contact um, Apple support. I hope you guys have done that about an iTunes purchase. Now, if you know me, there's only one TV show that I'm like a fan of. And I've been a fan for like the last decade, so forgive me if I've preached a little with this before, but it's Doctor Who. I love that show. And it's campy British sci-fi. It's not up everybody's alley, but I love it so deeply. And I don't have enough cable to watch it as it comes out because it's a BBC show. So every season I buy it on iTunes. And you know, you can buy those season passes. So as a show comes out, you can download it like the day after that it actually airs. So that's what I did. I got the season pass. It airs in Britain on Sunday nights. And then it airs on BBC America. And then I can get it tomorrow morning. It is so exciting. It's like Monday's my day off. I like started out. I watch Doctor Who. When Rachel comes home from work, I make her watch Doctor Who with me. <laughs> but last Monday, I went to download it, and the, the, the episode was not listed as part of my package. It was trying to charge me $2.99. And I was like, I paid for this season. So, you know, I get online, and I contact Apple. You know, they've got that chat, like, you know, get some on chat. And I told them my issue, and I was like, this is, this is like such an easy fix, right? At least it's an easy customer service win. Give me a $3 credit. I can download the episode. Then they can figure out, you know, I've already paid for it. But we all know that's not how customer service goes these days. So 20 minutes later, it was clear the support staff still didn't understand what I was telling them. So I sent a bunch of screenshots. And they're like, oh, okay, well, let me get more information. Just wait. 20 minutes after that, a full 20 minutes, the woman asked me if I could continue holding. So I'm pretty easygoing in general, but by that point, I was irate. And I was trying to keep in mind, there was that verse um, from Ephesians that kept coming to my mind, and I blame my mom on this because she would say certain verses to us that stuck with me as an adult. In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. And I'm doing this self-talk. I'm like, okay, Emily, this person on the other end is probably not paid that well. They're just following protocol. Don't dehumanize them. Don't abuse them. So I write, and I'm like, okay, I know this isn't your fault following protocol, but it's really frustrating to me that 40 minutes in, we can't solve this really easy thing. Could you please send this chat up the line to management? And so then she writes back, is a little more contrite, and she's like, well, we have you on hold, Emily, so we can find out what's really going on. Now, my 
when someone uses my name in the middle of a sentence when they're irritated with me. <laughs> okay, Emily. <laughs> right? So I wrote her back and I was like, <laughs> I wanted to say, okay, whatever her name was, Shelly. <laughs> want information about what's really going on. I don't care. I just want to go to the gym and watch my show on my day off. At this point, I should just pay $2.99. And she's like, oh, no, 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 we can help. Just wait. A full 20 minutes after that, like this is an hour, she offered to have somebody higher up take over. And I was like, thank the Lord. Seven minutes after that, nothing. So I'm typing. I'm like, hello, is anybody there? Oh, sorry, I'll transfer you. And then the message comes, your support chat has been unexpectedly dropped. Wait to be connected to a representative. Ah! I was like ready to throw the computer. And I took a deep breath and I thought, okay, okay, just pay for it. Just pay for it. So I go on, $2.99, I click it, buy, and then it says, you've already paid for this episode. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. I spent the last hour with customer service. Some silly tech issue. So then I'm driving to the gym and I'm like, I can't believe I spent almost an hour boiling with anger. And I took it out on a low-level employee because I was a little worse than I made it maybe sound here. I was okay, but I was a little more. And I was like, oh God, I feel so wretched and tense and waiting sucks. And how we wait matters to others, it matters in terms of how we feel physically and emotionally. All right, so when I lived overseas, I learned quite a bit about how different cultures relate to time. So we what anthropologists call future-oriented, right? We tend to dwell on what's ahead. We think about possibilities and on making things efficient. And in general, our culture is punctual. Right? Maybe not quite as much as the Germans or the Japanese, but if you're supposed to meet somebody at noon, you generally expect them to get there within about five minutes or so of noon. If someone's 15 minutes late, we become annoyed. When someone's 30 minutes late, we're outright angry, right? like I was with that customer service rep. That is a cultural limit. That's not the case in other cultures. And it was interesting to me that when I lived abroad, I could largely adapt to some of those differences. And I even came to really enjoy a more relaxed relationship to time. So when I lived in Western China, when a, a Tibetan friend would text me to say they were going to come into town to have dinner on Friday, I learned that they could show up anytime on Friday. And in fact, really anytime on Saturday. And nobody expected me to like wait around at my apartment for them. They just, you know, it was like, go along with my business. They'd text me and when I could get to them, that was fine. Like time was so fluid. And when I came back to the States, I actually had to learn to show up on time for meetings again. Now, Tibetan culture is not Chinese culture. I was living in China, and I know that urban culture is different than rural. But where I was, in general, where I lived, I was used to showing up about a half an hour late or so of a start time, and that wasn't considered late. As to where here, a half an hour makes Americans livid. But even though I actually prefer living with this more relaxed relationship to time, I still resort to my American culture when I'm here, right? When I'm living in the States and waiting on things and on people, and I don't like to wait long, even though I myself am often a few minutes behind. 
And there's so much in life that requires long-term waiting, not just like customer service, but you know, things like waiting on a partner's depression to lift, or waiting on a loved one to get help with an addiction, or waiting for a bad boss to quit or move on, or waiting for a life partner who's a really good match for you, or waiting for your kid to develop a better friend group. And sometimes in life, we never get what it is that we're waiting for. But isn't it better to wait with hope? Right? I actually lost my hope on that call with Apple, and that's when I boiled. But waiting with hope is what Advent asks of us. It asks us to wait non-anxiously, to wait wide-eyed and filled with wonder, just like looking for and hoping for the best in all people and in all situations. So during Advent, the story of John the Baptist is often told because um, John came to help prepare people for what they were waiting for, which was the birth of the Messiah. So we're going to look at the very first part of John's story this morning. It's the part of the story that tells us about how his parents knew they were going to have a baby. And that story goes like this. It's from Luke chapter 1. It says, During the rule of Herod, there was a priest named Zechariah. And his wife's name was Elizabeth. And we were told that they lived honorably and they had a clear conscience before God, but they were childless, it says, because Elizabeth could never conceive. And I just want to note the, Hannah was talking about implicit bias, a little bias in the text. Probably they couldn't conceive, but in that time and place, blaming the woman um, was common and fairly stigmatizing. So Elizabeth lived with that stigma. And now they were quite old, we're told. And it so happened that Zechariah was carrying out his priestly duties before God. He was working this shift that was assigned to his priestly regiment. It came his one turn in life to enter into the sanctuary of God. So every year, a high priest would enter what was called the Holy of Holies in the temple to make offerings. And the Holy of Holies was the inmost part of the temple where the most sacred objects were stored. And so this is Zechariah's one turn in his life. And as he goes in, the congregation, it said, was gathered outside and they were praying around the temple at the hour that he was burning incense. And then unannounced, without any warning, an angel of God appeared just to the right of the altar. And we're told that Zechariah was paralyzed in fear. And I thought, if I saw an angel when I was alone in a room like that, I'd probably be paralyzed in fear too. But the angel turns to him and says, don't fear, Zechariah. Don't fear, your prayer has been heard. And Elizabeth, your wife, will bear you a son. And you're to name him John. And I think this is a hilarious description. You're going to leap like a gazelle for joy. (laughs) And not only you. (laughs) Many will delight in his birth. And he'll achieve great stature with God. And then the angel says all kinds of interesting things about how John will be important and a a prophet. And then Zechariah says, do you expect me to believe this? I'm an old man, and my wife is an old woman. And when I read that line, all I can think about is my six-year-old niece, Vivian. Vivian is dramatic. She (laughs) uses her hands, and she would be a great thespian. And Vivian does this bit about, I'm an old woman. And one time in front of my 95-year-old grandma, she pretended like she had a cane, and she's like, I'm an old woman. We're like, Vivian, not in front of Grandma Gwen. And my grandma's so sweet, she just looked at her, and she goes, that's okay, I am an old woman. 
But when I read this, I just hear, I'm an old man, and my wife's an old woman. (laughs) That's Vivian's gift to you. (laughs) And the angel said, I'm Gabriel, the sentinel of God. I'm sent especially to bring you this good news. But because you won't believe me, you're not going to be able to say a word until the day of your son's birth. Every word I've spoken to you will come true in time. And meanwhile, the congregation that's gathered outside, they're getting restless, and they're wondering what's keeping him so long in the sanctuary. And he came out and he couldn't speak. And he was trying to tell people with all of these hand signs that he'd seen a vision. And you can just imagine, he's trying to be like, angel wings, can't talk. And then when it was completed, his priestly assignment, he goes back home. And it says it wasn't long before his wife Elizabeth conceived. And she went off by herself for five months, relishing her pregnancy. So we notice that Elizabeth and Zechariah, they desired children in their younger years, right? They waited and they hoped for something that seemingly was never going to come true for them. And presumably they had made peace with that, right? As we do in similar situations, because sometimes we have to relinquish our dreams or reimagine our lives. But I think in this story, we're asked to open ourselves up to the possibility that God could move and act in astonishing ways. And that if this is so for Zechariah and Elizabeth, that perhaps this is so in our lives, right? That perhaps we can open ourselves up to the possibility that God might act in ways that could astonish us. Because that's exactly how Zechariah and Elizabeth reacted. They were astonished. And Zechariah was in complete disbelief right? Do you expect me to believe this? I'm an old man and my wife's an old woman. And the response of the angel to his disbelief was to like hit the mute button. (laughs) I have to admit that like chewing on that this, this week, I was bothered by that. I was bothered by the idea that just because Zachariah expressed doubt about what the angel said, he was seemingly punished. And that's what some commentaries say about this passage, actually many commentaries. And they say, like, if you express doubt about the word of the Lord, you might suffer punishment. And I just think that doesn't mesh with the overall spirit of Scripture that gives ample voice to doubt and to disbelief and invites us to do the same. Right? Even Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So while at first glance, I think this angel's silencing of Zechariah can seem punitive, we might also read the angel's words as an invitation. Right? The content of Gabriel's message is about the fulfillment of God's word. Right? He said, you'll be unable to say a word until the day of your son's birth. Every word I've spoken to you will come true in time. So I wonder if perhaps the silence is meant to beckon Zechariah into a time of holy reflection. Like, just sit with this a while. And you'll see that I'm right. Because in that time of silence in which Zechariah was unable to speak, there's something that changes within him. And scripture doesn't tell us about that time. It doesn't fill in the blanks. I think it invites us to imagine what that might look like. We're invited to wonder what happened between Zechariah and God during that time. And what is it that turned him from being a person who argued with the angel into one who offers a song of praise and of freedom later in the story when he's able to speak again? And I think in our own lives, God often works deeply in us in moments and seasons when we're able to quiet our own minds and our own voices 
because while words can, they can be a really beautiful mode of communicating with God, sometimes we just fill prayers or space with words, they can also be distractions. Because sometimes our words, like Zechariah's, they manifest our own limits about what it is that we can imagine. Well, silence makes more room for the fullness of God and for God's imagination to work in us. And I think that sometimes perhaps our doubts can be submerged in silence for a season, not to kill them off or ignore them, but just to test their validity over time. You know, reverence and holy silence are appropriate in the face of mystery. In many places, Scripture points us to a holy silence in the face of the mystery of God. My all-time favorite verse is Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. I don't even know why it's my favorite, except when I meditate on it, it just seems so peaceful. The feeling of like the entire earth just being silent in the presence of God. Zephaniah, be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Be still and know that I am God. Right? So perhaps Zechariah has this holy silence imposed on him in order that he can reflect more deeply and more reverently on the mysteries of God and what God's doing. He's not to speak. He's to be still and silent. Because words reduce mystery and they try and capture it. And Zechariah here, he must not try to name it and control it, but just ponder it in silence. And so this Advent, I think we might also see whether God invites us to enter more deeply into times of silence, right? So in the quiet, God is able to work and give more imagination to our questions. God's power exceeds our own ability to name or capture or control the events in our lives. And in entering into silence, I think we can more in, um, better enter into God's mystery. And like Zechariah, we can learn to trust in God's transforming power that's taking place in this as-yet-unknown. And while Zechariah is reacting to the news with disbelief, Elizabeth, we told us, so overcome with anticipation, she sent off by herself for five months. Not sent off, she went off. And I think we can only guess at her motive for this self-imposed isolation. You know, it could be devotional, you know, a way of taking her own holy silence. It may have been precautionary. You know, she's older, so she's avoiding stress and the gossip of neighbors in her advanced age. Could have been a bit of both. I imagine she probably had a lot of feelings about a late-in-life pregnancy, just as many of us would if we were faced with the same prospect. I think it would have been completely understandable if she were a little angry with God. Like, that would be an appropriate response. Like, great, I've been praying for this my whole life, and now you're giving me a baby. Like, imagine having a baby or a three-year-old when you're like in your 50s or however old she was, 60s maybe. Like, I love and I really enjoy kids, but having a three-year-old at 55 sounds absolutely overwhelming. And I think when we're waiting for things in our lives, anger and frustration are not necessarily inappropriate responses. Right? My anger at the Apple support staff, I think, was pretty normal for humans. And with much larger issues of injustice, like waiting for prison reform or for the immigration camps to get disbanded, anger befits the oppression. Right? Anger is an appropriate response. But alongside anger and frustration, we can also hold hope and anticipation 
and wonder. Like, what if we looked at every person and every situation in the world, not with hopelessness, but with the expectation that God could affect change at any time? You know, a little closer to home, I've been trying to practice this kind of waiting with hope with a family member who needs some addiction treatment. And there are times when I feel frustrated and I angry and I want to give up hope. And there are times when that's appropriate. And yet I'm also invited to behave as if there is always hope. There is always hope. Because hope helps us see the best in people. And hope helps us hold on to our best ideals. Right? That even when hundreds of immigrant teenagers are being held in detention camps on our border with Mexico, if I lose hope for them, I will despair. Even when your loved one is struggling or your kid is having trouble in school or your family members are driving you crazy, hope keeps us from becoming pessimistic and bitter. And I think the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, it provokes us. I think that's what it's meant to do. It provokes us to look at the world wide-eyed, looking for signs that God could astonish us, that God could leave us breathless and silent and pondering at the overwhelming beauty of a breakthrough. And this is the meaning of Advent. This is what we're looking for in Advent, this idea that we can wait in wondrous anticipation. So we're going to take a couple of moments now for some silence and meditation. We often do like two minutes of silence or guided meditation, and we're going to do a little guided meditation today. So if you'd like, just make yourselves comfortable. Take a couple of deep breaths. We know the Spirit of God is here, and we're just going to invite that Spirit to open our imaginations this morning. So as you relax, start by picturing yourself in um, like a large cathedral, or if that's not helpful to you, maybe a beautiful museum. Just picture yourself someplace that inspires some awe and reverence in you. And it's dim in that space, but even as you look around, you can see. And so as we sit here for a few moments, take in your surroundings, what it looks like, what it feels like, where you're oriented in the midst of that space. Just pay attention to the place around you. Place your hands in front of you, in your mind. You don't have to do it. And just imagine either a person or a situation or you feel like you could really just use an infusion of hope. And imagine it in front of you as if you're just carrying it in your hands.
just continue sitting in the dark or standing in the dark. Sit in that despair and the frustration with that for just a moment. Off to your right, you notice there's a candle. Make your way over there and light that candle. We just hold that person or situation before the light of that candle as we meditate on the Gospel of John. It says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, we ask that you would turn your attention to these people and these situations that we're holding up before your light. I ask that you would give us an infusion of hope, that you would help shape us into a people who live and act and behave as if there is always hope. And Jesus, may you, your spirit rest on us this following week as we go about our daily lives. I ask that you would help open our eyes to the different ways that you are working. And I'd ask that you would astonish us and that we would be able to see where your hand is at work in places where we don't expect it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.